This is KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. I am indeed honored, delighted, and truly elated to welcome my guest today on the Arabology Show, Dr. Zahira Harb is here in person. She's been at Stanford throughout the month of May 2014. She is uh, one of the most amazing, dynamic uh, uh, people that I have met of late, and uh, she has been, uh, well, winning over audiences here at Stanford, Zahira Harib uh, is a senior lecturer in international journalism at City University in London. Her recent publications include Narrating Conflict in the Middle East, Discourse, Image, and Communication Practices in Lebanon and Palestine. She uh, co-edited with uh, Dina Matar and Channels of Resistance, Liberation Propaganda, Hezbollah and the Media. And she is a review editor for the Journal of media practice. Dr. Harib has 11 years worth of experience as a journalist in Lebanon working for Lebanese and international media organizations and she is currently uh, at Stanford as an international visitor. She was invited with distinctions to come to Stanford for the month of May with that very verbose intro Zahira. Dr. Harib Ahlan wa sahlan marhaba. Thank you very much for the lovely introduction. I'm really pleased to be here with you. I'm uh, very pleased to be at Stanford. And what is your impression of Stanford so far? You've been here a few weeks now. Maybe it's fair to ask that question. I'm loving it. Really? (laughs) Really? More than England? Um, Actually, I miss London now. (laughs) But it reminds me a lot of um, Lebanon. It reminds me a lot of the Mediterranean weather. Um, The architecture in the campus just feels like home. And uh, part of your uh, visit here, of course, uh, is to uh, talk to us about the role of social networking in the media, both in the Arab world and the West, and also uh, uh, the validity of looking at uh, some of these tools in terms of the Arabic satellite channels. So I'm kind of broaching topics from all over the place here because it is very difficult for me to summarize what your specialty really is. Um, I, I would be actually also kind of lost with where, where my speciality is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm mostly in journalism studies. Um, so I do study journalism practices. And um, recently I've been looking more into the um, convergence between social networks and citizen journalism and traditional media platforms um, and questioning the notion of professional journalist and the difference between being a citizen journalist and a professional journalist. I've, I've took some time to look at the um, role that the social social networks have played in uh, what I call facilitating the uh, some of the uh, uprisings in the Arab world, um, mainly in Tunisia and uh, Egypt. And um, I know many academics that work on the Arab world actually might disagree with this, but I'm one of the believers that um, social networks networks such as Facebook and Twitter mm-hmm. had a vital role, um, not as, as you know, they were not the reason the revolutions or the revolts or the uprisings took place, but they were the space that these young people used to mobilize themselves mm-hmm. and to, um, through mobilizing themselves through these spaces 
virtual space, they actually manage to talk to each other and facilitate protests. And I think they, if they didn't have that space, they wouldn't be able to be that successful in the organization of going out into the streets. Mm, but in terms of legitimacy, I mean, you see sometimes here professional, quote unquote, journalists who completely discard social networking sites. They're saying, you know, this is some blogger sitting there with a very unique and individual maybe point of view, but in no way does this represent any kind of what they call legitimate journalism. Yeah, how, do you, how do you respond It's mainly we, we, we consider two aspects of this. We consider credibility and we consider accountability. And usually what we do is we, we ask professional journalists and when we do our training, that's one of the things that we ask journalists to do is that social networks, citizen journalists, bloggers, those people who go on and actually um, report or narrate what, what's, what do they see around themselves, around them, we need to verify those as one of the sources that we look at. Mm. So we don't use them as the exclude, like the only source that we use in telling a story. And um, if usually if we're collecting a source, if we're getting a source, usually we need to verify it through three or two or three sources with mm -hmm. social networks, with, you know, uh, tweets, mainly with tweets. Mm -hmm. We need more than three, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, verifying sources to make sure that this information that has been tweeted is correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's one of the um, dilemmas that we live we live with now as as journalists. And um, I think the main issue remains that these are essential tools now. Yeah. yeah. And and we cannot. Uh, just, you know, um, disregard them. Yeah, and I'm so glad to hear you say that because, I mean, you know, uh, in, on this show, I have always sort of celebrated the technological aspect of what we loosely call the Arab Spring. Can I just stop you to say yes, that? Yes, please. I, I actually... Um, don't agree with the term Arab Spring yes. as such. I actually heard so, you say that before. Yeah, I was, I was trying to say quotes all over the place yes. here. Please, no, please explain. Zahira, please. Mm, no, because I think the way that we got that uh, kind of description of what was happening is just a, um, a kind of like an American way of uh, labeling like several events that were taking place, but they were not really understood. And that labeling was put in a way in order for certain audience to understand what's going on in that faraway region. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't, we, we don't see it as like the Arab Spring um it's still going on, mm, you know. Mm. A revolution doesn't start and end. It's a continuous process. Mm. And at one point, if it did not actually, if it doesn't have a clear, you know, aim, plan, target, um, um, set of values, it will lose its way and we, we've seen we've seen this in, in several places sure. I mean adopt, so adopting that term certainly is problematic yeah. but it's uh, it still has that positive connotation to it in the sense of you know the spring that is long overdue you know and I think maybe perhaps I'm, I'm surprised uh, it was called spring because it started <laughs> in winter in winter <laughs> and is not. it uh, and are we now in the Arab summer I don't know <laughs> I mean uh, but, but I think in terms it's autumn of now the, yeah but I mean I, I, the, the term initially wasn't used uh, pejoratively I think which is why a lot of Arabs adopted the term and uh, you know but, uh, each of these 
revolts, uprisings, the people of the land has given it its own mm. label, its own name, mm. basically. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the Egyptian were calling it the, you know, revolution of dignity. Mm. Um, Tunisia, again, there was like Jasmine revolution. Yes, yes. Um, so... Um, some, some in, even in Tunisia call it the dignity revolution. So yeah. it's you know these the people has given it has given these uprising, you know the names that they feel that they actually represent them yeah. and yeah. what they are doing and just throw the term Arab Spring all over the place. Mm-hmm. I think um, did not give what was happening in these countries the kind of um, did not fully represent what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I think you, perhaps we could expand that just a little bit further because when it comes to the Arab world, I mean, we're speaking about the whole region often here in the West as a homogeneous region. And so perhaps that's reflected in the term the Arab Spring where, yeah. you know, we're talking about different uh, uprisings and different, uh, different factors. Different dynamics, uh, different factors, you know. And to reduce it all to yeah. the Arab Spring as if it was one yeah. uh, is, is uh, certainly problematic. But uh, for the lack of a better term, before these uprisings, um, you know, you were around, you have been uh, on TV, you have, uh, you know, you've been on the ground, you've been in the trenches, as we say, um, prior to even you taking off uh, or, or your, your academic career taking off, you know, in terms of what you're doing now as, as, as Dr. Zahir Harb, you've got that real life experience under your belt. And it started with TV, right? In in Lebanon. Can you tell us a little bit about the beginning yes. of your journey? Uh, yes, it you know. started with TV <laughs> in Lebanon, but believe it or not, my degree, I, I have a BA in journalism from the Lebanese University. And my degree uh, was basically in print journalism and not in broadcast oh, journalism. Oh, wow. Oh, this is but interesting. on my second year in university, I went to interview, actually the end of my second year. But anyway, I went to interview the chairman of, uh, of a, um, a radio station and um, a newly established TV station in Lebanon, New TV at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just, you know, I, I interviewed him for half an hour uh, um, Hanna Saleh. I interviewed him for half an hour and then um, he said, do you want to work uh, in TV, uh, in TV news? And I said, but I'm still at uni. Hmm. And he said, yeah, fine. You know, we haven't started broadcasting yet and we will make sure that you will complete your studies. Hmm. And uh, I said, okay. And then, you know, I did the camera test and that was the beginning of my career as a broadcast journalist. Because you were appointed a newscaster, I mean, a news anchor editor. And you hosted, you know, uh, a very political show at the time on uh, on New TV, right? Yes. Can yeah. you tell us? It was, it was a very, very fruitful period for me. Yeah. It basically was the three years, um, three, four years of my career that actually established my career as, as a broadcast journalist in the country. And at New TV. At New TV, And, and yeah. so the show we're talking about here is called Al-Hadath. That was a daily editorial program, basically. And we would have a um, guest that will, um, you know, we will um, uh, work together to um, look, explore and analyze the political events that took place place in the country hmm. uh, in that particular day. Nice. And then, of course, you were uh, with uh, Future TV and you were also with Tele Libo. Now, for our Western 
listeners who may not know here, those are, you know, very well-known channels mm -hmm. that you were involved with at, uh, at different stages. Can you tell us just a little bit about your experience with mm -hmm. each of them? Um, I left New TV and went to Tele Liban, which is the state-run TV in Lebanon. Uh, and I worked for Tele Liban uh, for... Um, again, almost um, like three, three years and a half. And uh, it was that time in um, when I was working in Taliban that I literally hit the celebrity <laughs> <laughs> stage uh, in my career. Uh. Um, it was it was during the coverage of um, April 1996 events in Lebanon. Uh, you know, it was during uh, an Israeli assault that took place uh, against uh, Lebanon in April 1996. And um, I was covering that uh, 16 days um, live on, on Tele Liban, which was the national TV. Wow. And part of that coverage also went for the first time on satellite. Um, so, yeah, it was a very um, a fruitful, not forgettable experience for me mm. uh, these three sure, years. Sure. I also, during Teleli, during my years at Teleliban, I um, also started, uh, I worked on as a co-producer, co-presenter on a socio, very famous, popular socio-political program called Khamsi Asaba with my colleague, and then I moved to uh, Future TV uh, as 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 their um, uh, satellite news um, a deputy editor. And uh, And then the... I started producing <laughs> and presenting my own socio-political program, Ala Madar around the clock. Which basically, I <laughs> literally I was just trying to do something that might be a kind of like similar in in its idea yeah. to 60 minutes wow oh alamadarsa even the title yeah. i mean um you know we're we're talking about all these things happening to you as you were majoring you know in your ba and as you said you had an even gotten your degree when you were already being courted by uh, these TV stations. I mean, looking back at that stage, Zahira, do you feel that that's typical of what happens to most journalism? Were you particularly lucky that things happen too fast? Uh, I, I always believe that I'm, I'm lucky. I always believe that I have this luck, mainly when it comes to my professional career. Mm. Yes, but I also think that we actually, um, my generation, we just graduated um, just at the um, like the, uh, at the early years after the civil war ended in Lebanon. Mm. The country was coming back into being, you know, into into this prosperity mm. kind so, of. So you're talking the early nineties. Yes, yeah. Yeah. early nineties. You know, the, the civil war ended in 1990, basically. And that was the time when the media sector in, in Lebanon, uh, um, you know, flourished mm, mm. as such. And m we had me and, and many of my colleagues, like my generation, we had lots of opportunities opened for us. Yeah. Um, so we didn't really have a problem of finding a job. There were TV stations opening. Um, they were recruiting young journalists. Everyone was interested in having young journalists on board mm. uh, because for a long period of time during the civil war, um, journalism, at, you know, to a certain extent tended to be sitting within um, certain uh, uh, like few 
mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, journalist that has yeah. been carrying the, the profession um, during those critical times. So most of these newly established radio and TV stations were actually looking for what they used to call the new journalism plant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, we were there. Yeah. It was our time. Yeah. Uh, it, so in that sense, I think that we were lucky. Yeah. And is it harder now, Zahira? Like for, you know... Yes, uh, I think it's it's much harder. The the As we say it, the market now is more saturated. Um, that's why you see lots of Lebanese journalists now heading outside Lebanon to work in um, other, um, like, broadcast sector outside Lebanon, uh, mainly within the sector of the Arab satellite channels. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so then there are opportunities for young journalists these days, but they're more in the satellite channels and because I'm looking at some of these lineups here that we get even in the US as the you know Arabic TV bouquet of channels and just the amount of channels dedicated to everything from music to news to is mind-boggling which led me to assume that it would be much easier for someone a young journalist these days to find some kind of employment without necessarily moving to a field that was not their specialty how much of that is true it's uh it, it will it would look to the observer as an easy thing to do or to happen but it's not that easy um some of the uh, satellite channels are um they might have country quotas mm. Uh, some of them might want experience of at least three to five years. Mm. Um, so you have to start somewhere in your own country, in your own kind of like comfort zone. Mm. And that's what I always say. Um, try to have some kind of experience on you. Yeah, on a and local then, level. Yeah, perhaps. and then you can hit the ground running, yeah. as we say. This may be, and correct me if I'm wrong, some of the mistakes that p- some journalists who are very eager to, you know, get to cover, you know, uh, uh, international events from an international location, let's say, and want to get there too quickly without having established a reputation as a renowned journalist in their local surroundings. Uh, you, yeah. Zahira, did not do that. You actually started locally and gained uh, much-deserved fame and not- notoriety based on your work locally in terms of covering uh, Lebanon and then sort of stretched into uh, different arenas and then internationally. Do you feel you sort of paid your dues that way? I I didn't think of it that way. I was I always thought that I was doing my job mm. and in like in everything I do, I actually um, tend towards perfection in, in a way or another. So I do my job well mm. and I make sure that, you know, to do my job well. Uh, and I think that paid off. Alhamdulillah. 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 Uh, Zahid, I want to take you back to 96. You were talking about April 1996, which was a crucial year in your career. Uh, but also, if I'm not wrong, 1996 saw the launch of Al Jazeera. And I think that some of the talks that you've been, uh, you know, discussing here at Stanford, giving it here at Stanford, have really educated us, the Stanford faculty, the Stanford community, about the role of Al Jazeera and its problematic role and its changing role in coverage. But but let me take you back to 1996. I mean, at the time, was there any kind of like uh, channel of news for 24 hours? How did Al Jazeera, you know, come? Mm. No. Uh, there was no um, dedicated um, 24 hours news channel in Arabic. Hmm. 
at all. Um, before Al Jazeera, we had BBC Arabic uh, that was in collaboration with uh, ART, um, uh, which basically ended, I think, after a year and a half uh, of the um, a kind of uh, launch, yeah. um, launch, you know. Um, the collaboration mm. and then Al Jazeera took off in 96 many of its staff actually came from the BBC Arabic um, experience ah so these were people who left uh, BBC Arabic who, who basically BBC Arabic at that time closed down you know um, they they just there was a, a problem between uh, uh, BBC um, uh, management at that time refused to have any kind of uh, editorial compliance with uh, what ART wanted them to do. So there was this agreement and the um, um, the mutual uh, this you know collaboration ended at that time. Um, and many of the journalists who used to work for BBC Arabic, some of them went to work for NBC which is, it was the um, um, a new, um, the first basically commercial Arab satellite channel mm-hmm. that emerged mm-hmm. in, in the Arab world. And that was, it was it used to broadcast from London. And other journalists who worked for BBC Arabic uh, were recruited by Al Jazeera. By Al Jazeera. And they were kind of the impetus be, be behind the growth of Al Jazeera? They actually gave, um, many of them, um, gave the um, impression that you're actually looking at a high-quality professional mm news channel yeah and 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 these were seasoned newscasters who were yes. with bbc arabic so they came ready for a show yes, they, you did they, not have yeah. to you know they uh, did not have to train them and they came ready you know carrying the values principles and um uh, professional skills that they had they were trained uh on during their time at the bbc and so for listeners who don't know of course uh, al jazeera is based in qatar Yes, correct. Zia is based uh, in Qatar and is uh, funded by the Qatari government. And so that's how it was since its inception. It was that way in '96. But I also heard you say that it wasn't until '98 then that the sort of impact of Al Jazeera could clearly be felt upon the region. It was actually by 1998, um, the Al Jazeera like kind of of uh, uh, reputation as a, a rigorous news channel came into um, um, into you know existence, um, and one of the things that came across is the fact that Al Jazeera started. Uh, um, hosting um, Arab dissidents um, started um, talking about uh, issues and taboos that usually um, Arab audiences are not used to, you know, um, um, watch or listen to. Um, uh, they they have taken the kind of like international coverage of news into a different level. Mm-hmm. Um, many of us working, for instance, I used to work in, I worked in different newsrooms in Lebanon. Um, we used to get most of our, our international news stories through international news agencies. Mm. So we would have subscription to Reuters, you know, AFP or AP, and that's where we get our international news. With Al Jazeera, we started seeing 
correspondence. Mm. You know, we started seeing people reporting from the countries they are reporting on yeah. or people sent to these countries. So so the idea of international correspondent actually took a different form on Arab screens. Yeah. And, um, and then 2011, September 11 came and you know, and then the coverage of uh, the war in Afghanistan, which basically Al Jazeera was the only channel uh, besides CNN who left early, mm. uh, who were able, who was able to actually um, uh, cover live from Kabul. From Afghanistan, wow. Yeah. Well, well, you're saying this while uh, many other stations just left because yeah. of the dangerous situation or yeah. what have you. And, and many, many of them actually, for a long period of time, they didn't think that it's worth keeping someone in Kabul. Mm-hmm. So they, yeah. yeah. And I think they were all took by surprise for what happened. And then they cannot bring in their own correspondence back to Kabul. Mm. Um, and then from that time, Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera was, um, um, you know, was acknowledged internationally uh, by other news international, international news uh, outputs in a sense that they started taking Al Jazeera images. Mm. And so Al Jazeera has had the exclusivity of covering uh, Afghanistan and most of its images were, take, were taken by uh, major news channels in the world mm-hmm. uh, and they were attributed to Al Jazeera. How did the tragic events of September 11 change Al Jazeera? And in terms of its coverage, its philosophy, uh, you know, perceived or otherwise. I think what happened, uh, and that's where they did really good. Um, and that's where um, some of the shock of what's, what it actually had ended up doing now is, is a little bit um, uh, understandable. In a sense that after um, September 11, you started watching... Um, News international news channels talking about the Arab world, Muslims and Islam in a very demonizing way. Mm. Uh, we did a research uh, uh, that was part of um, like a, a, a huge research uh, that was mainly sponsored by Open University in the UK and Swansea University. And we were looking at perception of news after September 11. Mm. And um, during that research, I was one of the people who were looking at the um, Muslim communities in Southeast Wales and how did they perceive news after September 11. And the responses, the responses that I got from people who were saying that when we were watching um, CNN or the BBC or, um, you know, all these kind of like Western channels talking about Islam and Muslims, we were thinking that they were talking about other people. Mm. And these were Muslims, Muslims. living in, in Wales or, yeah. or where have you. Yeah. And um, Al Jazeera, to that extent, became their initial source of news. Mm. And it was in Arabic at the time, yes. right? Al Jazeera. There was no such thing. As yeah, there was Al just Al Jazeera Arabic. Arabic. Yeah. So you, you know, you, you, we, we discovered that you know, with within these communities and mainly within the Arab communities, um, Al Jazeera has become their initial source of news. Mm. 
they would listen, for instance, uh, for um, the um, BBC Domestic, BBC Wales, uh, to know what's happening in their own neighbourhood. Mm. Mm. But if they want to know what's happening in the world, they would listen to Al Jazeera Arabic. Mm. But of course, since then, and for those listeners who don't know, I mean, Al Jazeera has become this one umbrella um, under which you've got Al Jazeera English and Al Jazeera yes, they are, American. They are, yes, they are um, a network now, and it's it's a, it's a huge network now. So, I mean, this may sound like a naive question, but when I hear, you know, Al Jazeera English or Al Jazeera America or Al Jazeera Arabi, I tend to think, okay, it's the same network with diff- a different yes, language. Yes, you see, but, that's what's, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's one of the things that you bring up is that just because you see the logo or the Al Jazeera um, sort of uh, stamp on it does not mean that you're getting reported, the news is getting reported in the same way, right? Yeah. Um, um, Again, now when I when I give talks about you know um, the way the Arab uprising is being covered um, or how is the story told in in the Arab world, um, I always make a differentiation between Al Jazeera Arabic and Al Jazeera English. For someone who can actually watch both, uh, I can easily tell that you have two different editorial. Uh, policies that are, um, I don't know if I can call them policies, but at least you have two different editorial priorities mm. um, in on the two channels. Um, and I think one of the reasons why that is the case is because of the audiences that each of these channels uh, is targeting. Mm. So um, talking to Arab audiences is different than Al Jazeera English talking to English speaking audiences. And one of the aspects that came across um, that that made that differentiation very, very, very uh, obvious is the coverage of the uprisings in Bahrain. Hmm. Uh, So if you watch Al Jazeera Arabic, the Bahrain story did not actually was not given prominence on the running order of the news, Hmm. while Al Bahrain story was given prominence on the running order of Al Jazeera English news. Okay, wow. and even with the way um, Syria is covered now, you have you you watch Al Jazeera English, and you get to see kind of like both sides of the story. You watch Al Jazeera Arabic, and you only listen to one side of the story. Hmm. You just put these. I think it's it's not fair to put these two Together. like in yeah. the same kind of position. Um, and I'm, I'm still, um, I still watch Al Jazeera English, and I still feel that it's a, it's a good source of news for me. Mm-hmm. And I and I watching Al Jazeera English, I would know uh, about aspects, about political aspects of of certain countries, not just in the Arab world, but you know around the globe, that I wouldn't have the chance to watch it on any other international news channel. Mm-hmm. So for that aspect, I think. Al Jazeera English is still keeping its role as a professional platform where Al Jazeera Arabic has been deteriorating in the way they are practicing journalism, mm. mainly in the last two years. Yeah. And the main competitor for Al Jazeera, I mean, if we can call it a competitor, was in 2003 when, uh, you know, Al Arabiya 
was launched. And wasn't Arabia initially envisioned as, you know, a competitor for Al Jazeera that it seemed still, to have the, the yeah. market? Yeah, I mean, how, it is still in, in actually, yes, it came it came in, in you know, to the market as, as a competitor uh, to Al Jazeera Arabic. Um, and and it, it's still operating. Um, and in their minds, I think um, it's still the same. Uh, the um, owner of Al Arabiya, uh, Sheikh Al Walid Al Ibrahim, gave an interview two days ago uh, during the uh, Arab Media Forum in Dubai, uh, claiming that this is not the case and that Al Jazeera we don't actually operate on the basis that uh, you know we we watch what Al Jazeera is doing and we try to compete with it. Mm. And they were we being have, uh, accused of that a little yeah. bit. Is that what? They, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and you know he's he's claiming that this is not what they do, and that they you know they have their own um, identity as such. Uh, but as as scholars, uh, observers who've been studying the media market in the Arab world, we all know that Al Arabiya came as a um, competitor, as as a as another platform to balance hmm. the um, political media landscape in the Arab world. Hmm. But nevertheless, like Al-Arabiya has, uh, did not sort of sprout out and become different channels. And, you know, the name is not that well known and, in, and in, it's in actually, the West, Yes, example. it's one of the things that, that Al-Walid Ibrahim also answered for. And he said... We don't aim to do that. Mm. They have now established a um, um, website in English. So they have Al Arabiya news website in English. Mm-hmm. But they apparently that's what Al Ibrahim is saying now, that they are not going to expand into becoming a uh, multilingual um, news channel like Al Jazeera did. And, and he's claiming that Al Jazeera failed in that uh, experiment. Mm. Uh, and that's probably one of the reasons why they're not actually venturing mm. uh, like similar kind of ventures. So for those people who aren't too familiar with Arabic journalism and, you know, headlines, and I mean, w- would you say more or less that Al Arabiya and Al Jazeera would cover the same headlines you know, during a it certain depends. week? Uh, I mean, how would you sort of make that accessible to Western readers, American readers specifically, you know, who are used to reading, you know, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, you know, and sort of juxtaposing them with more independent papers? Would, how would we explain what we role each of these news source news sources would play in this dynamic um i i used to say that it's actually a good thing for arab viewers to have these two channels um in a sense that you have completely um two different political point of views that is being broadcast on two different channels. So um, if you want to know what's happening, uh, that is more of a Saudi kind of leaning, you would watch Al Arabiya. If you want to know what's happening in, in an aspect or an issue that is more of like what Qatar political kind of foreign uh, uh, politics is leaning towards, you would watch Al Jazeera. So, and for some time, these two channels were, were playing different kind of, you know, um, um, uh, emphasizing, uh, if you want to say, emphasizing different points of view in relation to um, regional and international politics. Mm. Now, that changed 
when it came to um, Syria, for instance, mm. for for a period yeah. of time, both were carrying the same line of coverage, um, but then um, they 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 had different type of coverage when um, when they were covering Tunisia, when they were covering Egypt, uh, the uprising, like the first uh, main uprisings. And then um, they, you could, uh, they, they also, it didn't not, not I've, I've mistaken, I was wrong in this because the, the, their kind of similarity started appearing with Bahrain. Yeah. Okay. They were covering so they Bahrain were cut the same the way. same way, and it's the same line, mm. you know, that was actually put across by the two channels in relation to Bahrain, mm. and then Syria, and now there is a bit of drift between Al Jazeera Arabic, Al Jazeera Arabic. I'm still talking about Al Jazeera yeah. Arabic, yeah. okay? Al Jazeera Arabic and Al Arabiya in covering uh, Egypt, mm. because Saudi Arabia now stands politically with. With um, the military in Egypt, uh, in Egypt, and Al Jazeera stands fully with the Muslim Brotherhood. Oh, really? So that kind of like so now you get two different lines of coverage from mm. political lines or political tendencies uh, in covering uh, Egypt between the two channels. Um, now there is a bit of political rift that has taken place between Saudi Arabia and Qatar mm. and that has also um, you know um, um, been reflected in the coverage of uh, both Al Jazeera and Al Jazeera Arabic and Al Arabiya. Mm. And those are just to make clear satellite channels. Uh, yes satellite channels but the, the thing that we need to be just to explain to our listeners is in the Arab word satellite uh, channels are very accessible mm. so it's not elitist as such yeah. and you don't in many countries you don't really need a satellite dish on mm. your roof in order to be able to get uh, access to these satellite channels yeah. you can get subscriptions through cable networks or in some countries you have what we call cap- cable operators mm. which basically uh, operators that works within certain neighborhoods so they will be distributing access to satellite channels for uh, you know a cheap price as like $20 a month you get you know, hundred or hundred twenty access to yeah, yeah to yeah. satellite channels. Yeah, so because I don't know about the, you know the satellite industry, let's say at least in the U.S. I mean that's considered a very limited market, and it's not necessarily the uh, most affordable option out there. Uh, but in the Arab world, because it's so accessible and because it's so af- affordable, people depend on those satellites for their news. Yeah. With the uprisings, with the upheavals, things started switching. Right? Right, because Arab listeners were now also going to blogs and going to independent sources, uh, the ones maybe we spoke about at the beginning of the interview, and uh, and slowly getting their information from there. I mean, how do you feel about yeah. that uh, step? The only problem with that is you have to also measure the 
internet access in each of these countries. Mm. So some countries have actually high access to the internet. If we're talking about the Gulf countries, they have uh, one you know of the highest. Actually, they have the highest uh, internet access uh, percentage in the Arab world. Um, like Lebanon, for instance, you get I think something around 29-30% internet access. Um, now there is more popularity with mobile with in- mobile internet access. Mm. But still, in certain countries, internet access is mainly um, uh, confined to cities, mm. and it hasn't gone yet to rural areas. Is it for the you know more affluent uh, yes. percentage? So, yeah. so whereas the satellite so channels are more accessible, accessible, internet so for instance, still remains. Yeah. Uh, so we we are you know. The social networks have have played a vital role in Egypt, and it's been playing like, uh, as I mentioned um, in one of my talks, you know, blogging, the blog sphere in Egypt has been vital and very um, um, popular um, since 2006. Uh, But Egypt still look at the latest statistics, which tell you that people actually 80 almost 83 percent of the Egyptian population go to uh, television as as their source of news so they actually see TV Hmm. see you know television news as their main source of news Mm -hmm. because that seems to go a little bit against this uh, perceived notion we have here in terms of you know the uh, uprisings being so fueled by uh, social networking sites with Twitter and and, and Facebook but those require internet access so that you're saying that still despite all that and despite of the upheavals that happen and the uprisings 80% of the people were being informed by Satellite Television. news by, by TV, yeah. yeah, and but the other thing that I felt that the um, the Arab uprising have have actually done is because it it helped open the media market in say Tunisia and Egypt and um, other countries. What happened is that you started like the the Egyptian media market has flourished. So you have now at least nine national TV stations, but. The only one that broadcasts terrestrially, like domestically on a national level, is the Egyptian TV. Mm. All the rest are Egyptian channels that are broadcast via satellite. Mm. And the Egyptian audiences actually watch them via satellite. Mm. But then at that time, because of because of that, the importance of channels like Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya was taken by those local channels that broadcast also via satellite. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not as much like going to Al Jazeera to know what's happening. It's going to one of these Egyptian channels to know what's happening in Egypt. I just love, you know, what you do, Zahira, honestly, in terms of, you know, you, there's, you have this passion for research and journalism and media analysis, and, and, and you seem to be in, in, in the age of that, uh, you know, era. Um, did you ever expect it to be to go this way? Uh, and do you envision the role of satellite TV to continue to be uh, quite major in their uh, influence of the people, or do you find do you envision it uh, being reduced or, or decreasing? I, I don't see. Uh, I don't see it decreasing. The, the good thing that they have done, and that was a, a very good example that actually took place 
during the uprisings um, um, you know, of 2011 is the fact that the uh, Arab satellite channels, and I think most TV channels in, in the Arab world, they have adopted their screens to fit with the social networks videos. Mm. So YouTube videos were actually adopted to fit the TV screens. Mm. So they, they uh, kind of like embraced this new form of, of um, uh, um, you know, information mm-hmm, that is mm-hmm. coming to them. And they found a place for it on their screens. They did not dismiss, dismiss it. Um, otherwise, I would have thought that it might have had a negative impact on mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. So that they, in, in that sense, they were actually, they were smart in, in adopting and embracing the kind of information that was getting from the social networks. Uh, because literally those were the people on the streets and they were expressing what was happening with them. Uh, I don't see, I, I still see a very uh, vibrant market for satellite channels in the Arab world. Um, until we get like a proper access to the internet um, until we, you know, countries, some countries in in, in, in the Arab world um, have only 6% access to the internet. So mm-hmm. unless we, the internet becomes a kind of like a tool that is actually um, uh, brought in to rural areas uh, and not just in the cities, um, then we might start looking at how... Um, Television as a traditional media platform mm. is going to adopt or to adapt. Yeah. That's the right word to use. To adapt to this new form. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, if the government of a certain country at a certain time wanted to shut off the internet, for example, that's relatively easier than to actually shut off all these satellite stations that people are receiving. If they want to, to shut down satellite <laughs> channels, they will do. They that's could, that's yeah. no discussion yeah. in it. And, and that has happened yeah. like in, in, in different parts of the, like in Egypt or yeah. at certain uh, historical junctures. Yeah. The satellite TVs were also uh, shut down, let's yeah, it's or, or, actually recently in, in Egypt, some of the Muslim Brotherhood satellite channels were uh, put down, you know, they were they were took off air, basically. Right. Which leaves people with what, if, if the internet is shut down and the TV, do we just get state-run TV through an old-fashioned antenna uh, reception? We, we, I don't, some, some, actually, some Arab countries hasn't gone yet into digital. Hmm. Uh, but I, I, I think... You know, it's technology moving forward, so mm. we won't need the antenna yet. Mm. But probably, yes, you mm. will get. You know, <laughs> prob- maybe some of the countries will still be dominated by terrestrial, you know, uh, transmission rather than satellite. Yeah. For the last part of this interview, uh, Zahira Harab, I would like to ask you a little bit about your own career and, and, and turn the focus back on some of your periodicals, some of your interests, and uh, and some of your adventures. I'm going to say in. In journalism, uh, let me first uh, ta- uh, speak about your publications here, particularly a recent publication called "Narrating Conflict in the Middle East: Discourse, Image, and Communications Practices in Lebanon and Palestine." Now, quite an impressive title. How uh, how hard was we wanted it to, it to be impressive? Yeah, this was this was just released last year, 2013, and uh, was the result, I bet, of a lot of work and research it's, on your. Uh, it's, it's actually an edited collection. So uh, we've asked um, some of our colleagues um, to uh, contribute 
Um, what I and my colleague Dina Matar did is that we've put the themes, uh, we've uh, decided on what we actually want to say in this book, mm-hmm. and we've asked several of our colleagues to contribute uh, to the themes of um, memory practices and discourses um, in in relation to how conflict is narrated um, uh, in specifically in Lebanon and, and Palestine. So coordinating this with Dina Mothar, I mean, were you guys uh, welcoming different points of views about the top, about certain the, topics? The reason or? why we did this book is basically we wanted to say that conflict is narrated not just in the traditional way that we always think of, which basically is through media. Mm. So we have, a, we had, a, um, you know, one of our colleagues working on, on uh, films, um, on billboards, on campaigns like I Love Life in mm. Lebanon, nice. um, um, you know, um, 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 collective memory, you know, people telling, narrating their stories, yeah. telling it from one generation to another. Yeah, and those were welcomed um, submissions. Yes. To your, wow. wow. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I think that's that's why the book is really kind of like, uh, I, I believe that it's a breakthrough in the sense that we're bringing um, new kind of uh, um, ways of seeing how conflict is being narrated. Mm. Um, wow! In, and, in the and, region, and I should say this book is available in print and, and online. Uh, it's it was released in 2013, one or two years after the publication of Channels of Resistance, uh, Liberation Propaganda, Hezbollah, and the Media. Now, wow! <laughs> the title alone, uh, you know, the begs the is, question of yeah. uh, you know what what got you to to. Uh, uh, be involved in that project. Uh, that book is a monograph, and it's based mainly on my PhD thesis. Wow! And um, in it, I basically look at the media campaigns that we Lebanese journalists have conducted um, in relation to uh, in, in covering um, the. Uh, um, Israeli occupation of South Lebanon between mm. 1996 and 2000. Part of the book was a, a what I call reflexive ethnography. So it's basically looking at my own practice during that time, uh, covering assaults and, and incursions and my colleagues' practices. And what I was trying to, to assess here is one of the things that came out of, of this is the fact that if you're covering a war that's taking place on your own homeland, on your own land, mm. if it is affecting your fellow citizens, if you're actually, if you're being a journalist that is living the same horror that your fellow citizen is living, it's different than reporting or covering a, an atrocity, a war that is taking place on someone else's land. Mm. So being a foreign mm. correspondent. Right. And in this case, of brackets. course, you're, you're speaking about Lebanon yes. and you being uh, a Lebanese journalist, journalist. in Lebanon yeah. during And then uh, from events. there, I uh, look at um, how Al Manar TV station that is affiliated to Hezbollah has actually uh, also. Uh, carried the same kind of principles and values that lots of Lebanese journalists actually during that time carried in relation to um, um, the Israeli occupation of South Lebanon. And I and I 
study, when I study the way Al-Manar journalists actually practices or practice their, their coverage, I'm, I'm not... Uh, what I call an ethnography. I'm not then a complete participant. I'm more of an observer that is looking at what actually how they have conducted their practice. And in addition to all these publications, I mean, you're also a review editor for the Journal of Media Practice. When did your involvement with that journal begin? And what are you? It started in uh, 2008. And, uh, yeah, I'm actually responsible for, uh, I look after uh, book reviews, um, artifacts reviews. So I'm, I'm, I'm the review editor. Um, and it's, it's interesting to actually uh, facilitate that. Uh, section within the journal. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, um, Zahira Harb, I mean, when I hear your name, you know, Dr. Zahira Harb, but then there's also Zahira Harb, the beloved, you know, Lebanese, and, and, and don't be, um, uh, you know, don't don't, don't uh, blush when I tell you this, but the Lebanese celebrity that people, you know, they know I used name. to. I always, uh, I always uh, ask uh, people uh, when, they, <laughs> when they when they ask me, oh, were you the one on TV? I, my, the first question would be, how old are you? Uh, uh, well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's been a long time. I understand, but, but I mean, uh, despite that, uh, it is a household name. And actually, that leads to the question that I was going to say. I mean, there's that Zahira Harb, the, the local, you know, well-known journalist who has a name in Lebanon, which grew into the region. And then there is Zahira Harb, you know, the, 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 the uh, doctorate holder, the uh, professor who is teaching right now at, uh, City, Univer- uh, at City University in London. Um, are those different Zahira Harabs? Are they different uh, stages in your career, or do you see them as linked? They are the same. They are a continuation. Um, there, there wasn't a gap between both. Um, I think it's just like this is how my career developed. Mm. It was a a switching careers, but still connected. Um, I still see myself as a journalist, uh, but now I see myself as a journalist (laughs) and as an academic. As an academic. I mean, are these necessarily in opposition? You know, can you... uh, uh, The answer is you're probably going to say no. But at the same time, how many journalists who have had the kind of experience you've had in the trenches... Are also PhD you, you holders be, teaching in, 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 in uh, prestigious universities such would, as City University in London? You would be surprised. Really? Yeah. Actually, now at City, I'm meeting, um, you know, colleagues who has gone through the same experience. Some of them more than, you know, worked more years in journalism than I did mm-hmm. and then went into, took their career into academia. And, and pursued their, their PhDs yes. and yes. all this. Because yeah. it, it didn't used to be that way. I mean, you no, were a journalist. You didn't yeah. necessarily, you know, go yeah. into a, a doctorate. Yes, when you, uh, but in, when you work in a uh, department uh, that only accepts um, um, people who has journalism experience and a PhD, and a PhD. you will realize that, wow, there are many of 
those people who has actually done the same thing. Yeah, it's a changing and, world. I mean, uh, to have those. And I know a few of me, my colleagues also you know. at Cardiff University who's done the same. Wow. You know, one so, or two. So not quite so uncommon as no. I thought. But I mean, when you are sitting there with your students uh, in London and you're teaching and you're learning and you're, uh, you know, uh, you're still in that quote unquote ivory tower at that point. Do you, you miss see, the trenches? Do you miss being back on the ground, uh, you know, uh, reporting uh, while... I know. only... I miss it, yes, I have to admit. <laughs> But I miss it most when something big is happening. Mm. So if a big event is taking place in the Arab world, I would definitely be feeling completely taken inside and like why am I wow. doing here you know wow. I shouldn't be here and still I today be. still, still yes. that, that, that yes. little yes. which is perhaps why a lot of people I know have described you as a born journalist I don't know what they exactly mean by that but she was born with journalism within her and and thank goodness that you decided to pursue this path because in many ways uh, Zahira you are also without perhaps intending to, you function as a role model for so many young people who are now embarking upon the same journey. You're making me blush. <laughs> You're making me blush now. But I mean, I'm saying this within all objectivity because I have been, you know, we, uh, I've been talking to students and people who have followed your work. Certainly, you're, you know, somebody can Google Zahira Harb on the internet and see the amount of work that you have done. Uh, yet, you retain this modesty and you retain this desire to report to the people no matter where they are you haven't sort of closed off the doors to the past in that way am I correct in saying that? yes you are absolutely correct <laughs> I don't think I will ever close the door yeah no yeah. so what is next for Zahira Um now I'm actually um, I've just been informed that a book proposal that I've put through uh, to um, my publisher in London IB Taurus has been approved oh mabrook Thank you. <laughs> and it's uh, reporting the Middle East, the practice of news, and it's going also to be a uh, edited collection. Wow. Uh, but the lineup of contributors is really, 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 really exciting. Ooh. And I'm highly excited to actually work with uh, all of my colleagues um, on this book. And I hope that it's going to be a um, not just an academic text, but also a guide for journalists. Right. If they want to report on or from the Middle East, they will have a text to go to. Sure. And simultaneously, you're going to be going back to City University in London. Yes. I, I hear at the end of this month, at the end of May, mm -hmm. where did the time go? Where you'll continue to teach your classes. Uh, yes, uh, I'm, yeah, I, I do teach and I, you know, I'm a researcher and I'm a senior lecturer. No. Well, Zahira, it has been a joy to speak with you today uh, in this formal and informal way. I am uh, delighted to have made your acquaintance here at Stanford. I hope you'll come back and uh, you know, I know the community here has embraced you with open arms. Uh, several of the departments that have uh, officially invited you have been very positive in the way they are disseminating information about you uh, and we at the Arabic department are also very proud to have you be one of our colleagues even temporarily. Uh, any, any chance of coming back to Stanford or to the USA? I don't know. It's too <laughs> far away for me. <laughs> But But I have to say, I was really, really, really honored 
to have met people like you and uh, other members of the Arabic um, program. program and colleagues at the Humanities Center at the uh, you know uh, Arab Reform and Democracy Program yes. um, and I've I've been telling my friends back home that you know there are lots of nice lovely people <laughs> in California you get people smiling <laughs> you know smiling at you on the streets uh, that's really nice <laughs> well the feeling is mutual well Zahira uh, since this we do have this you know perception of Arabic listeners who always like to hear a goodbye in Arabic, I want to leave it to you to say ma'asalama to uh, our listeners here on the Arabology Show and to say shukran uh, jazeelan to you for coming in today and for sharing your thoughts, your experiences with us. Uh, Zahira, I leave it to you to say ma'asalama bil-arabi bi-ay tariqa baddik. Baddi ur shukran, ramzi ala al-istidafi, shukran lal-mustami'een la'anno akhadna min wa'atun wa batmanna anno ikun وقت سعيد وإلى اللقاء